Amen. I've got to share with you how blessed I am to have the team here. Praises to the Lord and worship and song are just really an amazing way to touch base with your creator. And these kids up here are just playing under difficult circumstances. We're so used to having an audience, so to speak, that we can bounce off of. And uh, they're doing exceptionally well. I know it throws me off my game, so to speak, but it's still God being praised and God being blessed through us, and we are lifting him up and worshiping him. And ultimately, it's not a matter of us. It's a matter of having him touch lives through this wonderful media called live streaming. Well, I guess not life, live streaming. I'm from the old school. Well, good morning again. Welcome to New Hope Chapel, this live stream production. And today is one week after Easter. And my message this morning springs from that event beginning that day. And my text is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. You know, generally to assist the the listener, I routinely provide a sermon outline for easy reference, and that has not been possible. However, to assist you this morning, I am going to give you a little bit of a background. As we know, Jesus died, and on the third day he arose. And he subsequently appeared to the apostles and disciples. And he met them to provide further instructions on the work that he expected from them. And then after a time, the Lord ascended into heaven. And the apostles and the disciples were to wait on the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was to empower them for the work of Christ yet to be done. And from that premise flows my six-point sermon this morning. A lot of points, but I'll try to be as concise as possible. And my title is, The Unfinished Works of Christ. So pray with me through Psalm 1914. Dear Lord, this morning let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Every preacher has preached on the finished work of Christ on the cross. When Jesus died, he cried with a loud voice, It is finished. The Pharisees and the scribes hoped that he was finished. The demons of hell had a holiday because they thought Christ was finished and that somehow they had thwarted the work of redemption that they knew Christ had come to do. But Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The work of atonement was finished. The sacrifice for sins was finished. The plan of salvation was finished. Sin, death, hell, and the grave was finished. There remains no other sacrifice for sin, for Jesus made that ultimate sacrifice that alone could wash away our sins. All that was necessary for man to be saved was finished, for Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is why salvation is Jesus plus nothing. It is not Jesus plus works, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus ritual. Salvation is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. No other mediator exists or is needed between man and God. Jesus redeemed us. No co-redeemer exists or is necessary. It's blasphemous to suggest otherwise as it denies the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus plus anything denies his sufficiency. Calvary speaks of the finished work of Christ. Calvary was forecast by a holy God long before the foundations of the world was laid. The road that Jesus took on this earth was always to lead to the cross. And it was on that cross that all the sins of all the people who ever lived and will live was laid on the Son of God. The finished work of Christ took place on the cross. But the unfinished work of Christ begins at the empty tomb of Jesus on that first Easter. In Bible days, it was the custom of a family member to close the eyes and kiss the cheek of their dearly beloved one. When Christ died, it fell upon Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to perform this task. It was these two men who loved Jesus so much that they begged Pontius Pilate for Jesus' body that it might be prepared for burial. And in my mind's eye, I can see them carrying a ladder to the cross. They climbed up the side of the cross and pulled his hands over the nails. It is unthinkable that they could get those spikes out of the wood, not from that angle. Once the hands were loosened, they let Jesus down, gently down into a sheet, and then they removed his feet from the nail. And no doubt, they prepared Jesus' body in the traditional way. The body must be washed, wrapped in white linen, and with his hands folded over his chest, they closed his eyes, kissed his cheek, and placed a napkin on his face. For three days, the Jewish leaders in cahoots with the Roman government schemed to make sure that nobody would steal his body. For three days, the forces of darkness, the demons of hell, and Satan himself rejoiced in their supposed victory. But then came that day of all days. Then came that third day. The stone was rolled away and Jesus came forth alive forevermore with victory over death, hell, and the grave. The one who was, is, and is to come came forth like a mighty conqueror, and all of heaven must have praised the highest praise broken out because Jesus had risen from the dead. Mary was the first to come to the empty tomb. She's frightened to see that the stone had been rolled away. She ran to get Peter and John, and together they returned to the tomb. My text 
John 26 and 7 states, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the napkin that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Peter and John went in to see. The grave clothes were lying there, but they noticed something else that John mentions in his gospel. He tells us that the napkin which was placed over the face was not thrown aside like the grave clothes. The Holy Spirit was careful to point out that the napkin was neatly folded and placed at the head of the grave. What was the significance of the neatly folded napkin? Hebrew tradition holds the answer for us and helps us to understand how important this folded napkin is. The folded napkin had to do with the master and servant tradition. When the servant set the dinner table for the master, he arranged the table perfectly. The servant would then stand off to the side and wait until the master was finished. When the master finished eating, he would rise from the table and use the napkin to wipe his hands and his face and then would wad the napkin and leave it on the table. The master, having finished the meal, the servant would then know it was all right to clear the table. The wadded up napkin meant... I'm finished. But if the master got up from the table and folded the napkin and laid it by his plate, the servant knew that that folded napkin meant I'm not finished yet. The folded napkin meant that the master was coming back. After three days of uncertainty and despair, after Christ's death, they walk into that empty tomb and they see that folded napkin. They knew immediately, our Lord is not finished. He's coming back. Listen, the napkin is still folded. And that means some significant things for us today. The folded napkin speaks to us of the unfinished works of Christ. And so first, consider that Christ's work of redemption is unfinished. Praise God, Jesus is still in the business of saving souls. His work of redemption will continue until the day that last willing soul is saved in the body of Christ that is, his church, is complete. Until Jesus fulfills his promise to come again, he will be redeeming men, women, boys, and girls. And the word redeem means to buy back. It's a reference to the practice of buying the freedom of slaves. Jesus is in the business of freeing the captives. All around this world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, people are being bought out of the bondage of sin, hell, and death, and they have become the adopted sons and daughters of God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 41, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached around the world as a witness to all of the nations, and then the end shall come. 
as long as Jesus delays his coming. There is hope that Satan's holds that the there is hope for those that Satan holds as hostage, whether they are chained by the bounds of drugs, alcohol, rebellion, or unbelief, the work of Christ can free them from the law of sin and death. You know, I'm thankful that I can be part of a church who believes the main thing Jesus gave us to do was to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. And I am thankful to be part of a church that does not leave it to the professionals, but where ordinary laymen win souls to Christ. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out and 3,000 souls were saved. This proves that the work of redeeming souls would continue. We, as believers, are partakers with Christ in that work. We are the church. The church was never intended to be a hierarchy of a selected few. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You shall have power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. And all of you have to do, all you have to do is look around and you will see that we have so much work left to be done. And all of us have neighbors, friends, relatives, classmates, and business associates. All who are lost without Christ. They may be religious, but they are still without Christ. But not only that, Secondly, Christ's work of redemption, Christ's work of restoration is unfinished. When Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Christ, he instructed her to go and tell my disciples and Peter that I am risen. Why was Peter specifically mentioned? It was because at the time that Jesus was taken prisoner and put on trial, Peter denied the Lord and lost fellowship with Christ. The fact that Peter fell from fellowship with Christ shows that it could happen to us. Peter was more surprised than anyone else that he could ever deny Christ. He had made that great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter shows us that the greatest Christian must be ever vigilant about his relationship with Christ. Paul instructed us to beware. If we think we are strong, we might still fall. Paul said he disciplined his body lest while he preached to others, he himself might become a castaway, disqualified. It means no longer usable. It means to be put on the shelf. This tells us that a believer can become so disconnected from fellowship with God and Christ that it makes it impossible for Christ to use him. If the Bible says this about Peter and Paul, what makes you think it couldn't happen to you? Every Christian can think of people who have fallen from fellowship and usefulness, people who used to be active disciples, now sit on the sidelines because of pride and prayerlessness. But thank God Jesus is still in the restoration business. That's why he specifically mentioned Peter. Jesus restored Peter to usefulness, 
And he went on to become the great preacher of Pentecost, where 3,000 souls were saved. You may be here listening, but there was once a time when you were active in God's work, but somehow that is no longer true. Well, Jesus can restore you to fellowship and usefulness if only you will come to him. Jesus is calling you who no longer love him as you once did. And he offers to restore you to the fellowship and usefulness that you once knew. If you're like Peter was, if you now follow the Lord from afar, then open your heart to him today and he will restore you to fellowship and usefulness. And so the work of redemption is finished. Secondly, the work of restoration is unfinished. And third, his work of resurrection is unfinished. First Thessalonians 4, Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Jesus was not going to leave a single bone in the ground for the devil to gloat over. This is what is called the first fruits of the resurrection. And I believe the Bible teaches that every spirit of every saved person goes to heaven the moment of their death. And since there is no purgatory at death, one is either saved or not saved. The believer's body goes into the ground, but the spirit goes to God. For to be absent from the Lord is to be present with the Lord. And the believer is then given a spiritual body in which to dwell until the coming of the Lord takes place. But when Christ descends for the rapture, every believer who has died in the Lord will be resurrected and given a glorified body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not conjecture. For Paul said in Philippians 3 that God will change our body like his own glorious body. He will transform us and give us bodies like Jesus had when he rose from the dead. It was a body similar to what he had before the crucifixion, but much improved. It was a body that could be recognized and yet could travel at the speed of thought. It was a body that could process and ingest food, yet it was a body that could pass through walls into a room without going through a door. Paul said that beyond these few hints, that it was a mystery. And it's enough for me to know that just as Jesus had victory over death, hell, and the grave, so will we. And so his work of redemption is unfinished, his work of restoration is unfinished, his work of resurrection is unfinished. And fourth, Christ's work of the rapture is unfinished. I never tire of reading about, thinking about, and teaching about the rapture of the church. That is, those who are born again, spirit-filled believers. We get the word from 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul says that right after the resurrection of those who have gone to be with the Lord, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. No more ills, no more pills, 
no more bills. The word caught up in the Greek means to be carried away by a powerful force. Can you imagine a force so powerful that every living believer in Jesus Christ on this planet will rise to be Jesus like metal rises to a magnet? The Bible says that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will also be changed and we will be given glorified bodies. Now, Scripture teaches that several raptures have already occurred. The first rapture was the man Enoch in the book of Genesis. Scripture says, Enoch walked with God and then was not. God took him. Enoch was walking along on earth when the Lord said, Come home with me. They looked for Enoch, but they could not find him, for he had been raptured. The next rapture the Bible speaks of in 2 Kings is that of Elijah. Elijah was caught up with horses, drawing a chariot of fire, and he went up in glory. They wanted to look for him, but his successor said, Don't bother, he's gone, he's not coming back. The next rapture took place on a hill overlooking Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 tells us that while the disciples were watching that Jesus began to rise, his gravity suspended, and as they watched him go up into the heaven, a cloud received him out of their sight. Two men in white apparel stood by, which also said, verse 11, You men of Galilee, why stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. But his work of rapture is not finished until the day he descends from heaven and with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and we are carried away with him into heaven. And then fifth, his work of retribution is not finished. When Jesus comes in the rapture, it is only for his people. The unbeliever, the half-believer, the unsaved, the scoffer, and the lost are left behind. Revelation chapter 6 through 90 reveal that this will be seven years of tribulation when Jesus the Lamb will pour out the wrath of God on the unbelieving and scoffing world. Every person who rejected Christ or his sufficiency will be forced to take the mark of the beast, the one world leader who will arise during this time. Judgment after judgment will come. Mountains will be removed from their places and cast from the sea. The thermonuclear war and natural disasters will destroy the earth's ecology. Jesus said, then there will be a time of tribulation such as was never known before and never shall be. In one stroke, a billion are killed. The sun becomes so hot that boils break out on men's skins. This is the day of God's wrath. The bottomless pit will be opened in demons so powerful and so evil that God has not previously loosened them, but now they are loosed during this time to torture the minds of men. 
Jesus said, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon will be turned into blood, and that stars will fall from the heaven. But listen, today is still a day of God's grace. In this day of grace, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not penance, repentance. He offers his mercy, his forgiveness, and his grace. But just as he promises salvation for those who will receive it, he also promises retribution to those who reject it. Not fully receiving and accepting equals rejection. For centuries on end, there have been those who have insulted the Spirit, who have trampled on the blood of Christ, who have rejected his offer of salvation, that is, through faith alone in Jesus alone. And now there will come a time of judgment and retribution when God will balance the scales. One day, the patience of God will be exhausted. God will say, it's enough. And as he destroyed the world by water in Noah's day, he will destroy the world by fire in that day. His day of retribution is not finished. And lastly, sixth, Christ's work of reclamation is not finished. Since Genesis, God has given the devil certain latitude. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And since the Garden of Eden, Satan has usurped the claim of God upon this earth. But the day is coming when Satan's time is over. The Bible calls this the day of the Lord when the armies of Antichrist are gathered together in the valley of Armageddon to fight against the Lord. Revelation 19 says, Jesus will return in power and glory, and on his vesture and on his thigh a name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Antichrist of this time and the false prophet and the beast of centuries past who have now had their way in these seven years will be cast into the lake of fire. Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit and Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Somebody will ask, what is this world coming to? I can tell you the answer. The world is coming back to Jesus. It was made by him and for him and the time is coming when God shall place all things under his feet. And then... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is my Lord's world and Jesus shall reclaim this world that is rightfully his. The knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as water covers the sea. The lion and the lamb shall lie down together. Listen. The napkin was and is still folded because the master is not yet finished. Amen.